0: I'm Nick Harcourt, and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. I'm joined on this episode of The Sound of Success by music critic, author, and radio host Robert Hilburn. As music editor of the Los Angeles Times from 1970 through 2005, his thought-provoking reviews, essays, and profiles appeared in The Times, as well as other publications around the world. His work helped shine a light on the nascent careers of a diverse range of artists, from Elton John, Tom Petty, Patti Smith, and Elvis Costello, to Prince, Guns N' Roses, Public Enemy, Eminem, and The White Stripes. Robert has also written a memoir and best-selling biographies of Johnny Cash and Paul Simon. Robert,
1: welcome. Good to see you. Good to hear you. your voice. I hear it all the time on the radio, but it's nice to see a face with it.
0: You know, I should point out while we're talking about radio that your show, Rock and Roll Times, with Robert Hilburn, airs in Los Angeles on the same station that I work at, KCSN, Wednesday nights at midnight. And if people want to hear the show around the world, it's very easy to find with a quick Google of Robert Hilburn and Rock and Roll Times. So we're going to get to the music questions shortly, Robert, but first up, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you got your start as a journalist. Were you an avid reader when you were a kid? Did you write when you were a kid? I know you ended up going to school and getting a journalism degree, but what about before that?
1: Yeah, it's funny, you know, fate. Uh, When I was in the fourth grade, I was living in Dallas, Texas. My father was in the aerospace industry, and he went around to different aerospace companies and one was in Dallas, Texas. And in the fourth grade, uh, there were when, when you go to the school, there were two levels, the A group and the B group. And when you come in, you're in the B group. So I was in this, the secondary kind of slow group. And the teacher asked us one day to write a story, just make up a story and write a story. And she thought it was so good. She walked me to the A group and let me read the story to those kids. And I think, Vic, that got, gave me a certain kind of confidence or interest or something I could do. So I always enjoyed writing after that. It was always easy to take essays. The the worst thing was a multiple choice question. But an essay was always good for you. So writing was comfortable. I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be F. Scott Fitzgerald or H- Ernest Hemingway, that kind of thing. But I realized I have nothing to say in a novel. You know, it's, I I wanted the lifestyle, but I didn't. So I I go into journalism. I, I majored in high school, I majored in college. Uh, I get a summer job at a paper in Los Angeles. That leads to the Los Angeles Times, where I'm a reporter, not a music writer. Mm. I, I, I wanted to write about music. That's what I loved, uh, and so I talked him into to letting me write reviews. I'd never written a review. Can you imagine starting at that place with no background?
0: Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you to back it up a little bit. As you said, you you got a degree in journalism, actually at Cal State University in Northridge, which is where your radio show. Uh, originates from. I love how things come full circle. But you, you mentioned that you, uh, you you got to the Times. But before you got to the Times, you were working in a local newspaper, right, in the Valley?
1: Yes, yes. It was called the Valley Times Today. It was owned by Look Magazine, which was a big rival of Life magazine back in the 60s. Uh, they bought it and they wanted to kind of make it a more, you know, a kind of a a suburban San Fernando Valley newspaper, but it, it didn't quite work out. But at least I got started there and I got to cover politics and police and all that kind of stuff. And what I learned was I didn't like being general assignment. You know, I didn't, I, didn't, I like to specialize in something. So I thought one day, my God, music, if I could only write about music, Rolling Stone see, comes along at this time. And, and gee, I could write about music. I had never written about music, but I had all kind of confidence that I knew what was good. You know, I knew Elvis was good and Chuck Berry was good. I could tell phonies and so forth, so I, and I could write. So the writing part got me the job, and then I learned the music criticism part on the job.
0: So when you went to the LA Times, originally it was as a, as a freelancer, right?
1: Yes, we had freelancers, and I wanted to cover rock and roll. But you know, rock and roll was not a big thing in the newspaper world in 1965, 66, when the Beatles first came to the Hollywood Bowl. The Los Angeles Times had a teenager cover it, thinking that's the only person who's going to be interested in the Beatles. So let's have a teenager cover it. Uh, and so the person who was covering rock and roll was a part-time copy editor. And so they and I said, well, you know, there's other things. What about if I wrote about country music or rhythm and blues? And they said, country music, this is, you know, this is Los Angeles. This is in Nashville. I said, no, there's more country music sold in Los Angeles than any other city. So they gave me a chance. One of the first stories I did, I went to Folsom Prison and Johnny Cash's concert. And that was great.
0: Tell us about traveling there and the actual experience of of, uh, covering that.
1: Well, it's interesting. It'll show you what ambition and, and desire and passion will do for you. Because at the times they said, well, why don't you do a couple of long stories to show us what you can do? Okay. And I was a fan of Johnny Cash. I had, I loved Sun Records, Elvis, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee. And he had a song called Folsom Prison Blues. So the newspaper reporter in me says, what can you do better than have the guy who sang Jeff Folsom Prison Blues singing it to the prisoners in Folsom Prison? And I saw so up So the, Editor said, Okay, yeah, go do that. And uh I contacted Columbia Records and they wouldn't they didn't want me to go because John they had tried to do the prison concerts before with Cash, and he was always show up so stoned that they had to cancel the concert. So it'd be bad publicity. But I knew a DJ in LA who knew Cash and I got to go there with him. And I met Cash that day and uh it was just a wonderful experience. You know, we I, I, we flew up, stayed at the motel near the prison. Ronald Reagan was having a rally at the hotel. Mm. And, they shake, and, they meet him, and they shake hands and stuff. And I go over there, and I've got my suit on. You know, I, mean, I, I look like a narc, you know, going in <laughs> to the, with, with people. And it, but once you get inside, uh, there, there are pe- guards with guns walking up. They had some kind of a stairwell. Because two weeks before, a guard had been kidnapped or, or held hostage. So it was a very tense atmosphere in the place. But uh, the, the the prisoners loved Cash because they thought he was a former prisoner. They thought he had been in jail and so forth. And he, and he comes out and does his songs. And uh, they do two shows because in case the taping didn't go right. And one of the great lines is, the first show is it, Nine o'clock, and the second show was at eleven o'clock. So the greatest concert in country history was over by noon. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, so, so I write the story. It you know they give it a whole page in the paper. Uh, it becomes a huge sensation. The L.A. Times says, "Well, maybe this guy knows what he's doing. Maybe we should hire that guy." Isn't that so? I mean, it's amazing. How could you ever duplicate that? You know, if you, if you put me back in that times building, I could probably never reproduce that kind of a. And i might never have gotten into music.
0: Well, as you mentioned, I mean, you you hustled for it, um, which clearly was a big part of, uh, of of how you you got to be there and, and why you were able to to cover it. But at the same time, this was a new way of of writing, wasn't it? At least for the Los Angeles Times, they'd never done anything like this before.
1: I just covered it as a reporter. I went in, you know, I wrote it the same way I would have covered a political rally, let's say, you know, I, I, I didn't cover music was the, it was interesting, but I was talking to a reader as a reporter. I wasn't talking to him as a music fan and I wasn't thinking they're they're a music fan. I was just conscious of telling what happened.
0: You know, I don't know if you know this story and, and, and I, I might have it slightly wrong. And if you do know the story and I have it wrong, tell me, but a few years ago, about six months before Merle Haggard passed away, I got to interview him for a TV show. I used to host Guitar Center Sessions over on DirecTV. And he told me the story of when he was in prison, and I'm presuming it was Folsom, and he saw Johnny Cash perform. And that was the trigger for him to uh, become a musician himself. And many years later, he met Cash. And uh, Cash was like, oh, nice to meet you or whatever. And and he'd said, uh, you know, I've actually seen you before. And he was like, really? I I don't remember meeting you. And he goes, no, I was actually in jail when you came. And I don't know if that was Folsom or one of the other concerts, but it's a pretty cool story.
1: No, it's absolutely true. But it was San
0: Quentin. Oh, there you go.
1: When Merle would tell that story, sometimes... People would get confused. They didn't understand that he was on the show. No, no, I was, in, I was a prisoner at, at that concert. And, but those two guys loved each other. I mean, it's amazing, the friendship. They they've always were friends. John used to visit. I mean, Merle used to visit John. we deathbed. Uh to his deathbed. Country music is a wonderful thing because it's not as big a deal as pop music. You know, it's a smaller world. They know each other. They all live in the same town. It's an interesting sociological uh, phenomenon.
0: I mentioned that you went out quite frequently with artists, traveling around with them. And I want to ask you about a couple of those. Elton John in Russia. Now, we know, maybe not everybody listening, but your reporting on Elton John at the Troubadour really gave him a a career. And then he became one of the first artists to go to Russia and, and you went with him. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, yes, I was the only American writer. They had a bunch of people, maybe four or five or six critics from in London that also went on the tour. But the great thing was you get to to Moscow, you get to your, your hotel, and then he took the train to St. Petersburg and they had two or three concerts there. Then they take the night train back to, to Moscow. And what we discovered was it was a very nice hall. It was like, the, uh, it was like an opera hall. It would be like in America, plush seats, uh, and all the, the people in the show, though, they weren't fans. They were members of the party. You know, it was like the Communist Party members got all the, the the passes. And so Elton was disappointed by that. You know, he wanted to play for fans. So the opening night in Moscow, he opens, he hears a bunch of noise outside, and he opens the windows, and down there, there's 4,000 fans screaming, Elton, Elton, Elton. And he waves at them. And they stopped, They're, they're stopping the streetcar, and it was. And he starts crying. That just the fact that they would do, go to all this trouble, you know, to say hello to him, and uh, it was. It made the trip so wonderful that he would try to go out and meet them. The party wouldn't let him do that. That was, you know, they they didn't want to lose control of the thing. But it, it was it was that night that pretty much saved the tour. You know, he would have been very disappointed if they're just playing for communist party officials
0: it was a very significant thing for him to go and do this though as well wasn't it was this 1979
1: he was the first western artist you know john reed who was managing because he was a very ambitious guy and they and they loved to do new things and so he was always looking for something like that to do and it was a a, a sensation you know they had a, a you know the worldwide coverage and, and uh just uh, word of mouth about
0: it. It was around the same time that you also hit the road with the sex pistols in the U.S.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I just, I wanted to be, the great thing about the LA Times, the editor said, we want to, we want this to be the best music publication in the world. We would want to be as good as the New York Times. Said, Whenever you want to do something, you do it, you know? So I could, I, I would travel to London. i has spend two weeks every year interviewing people, looking for new talent and so forth. That's fantastic. But it would, if something would come up, I mean, it it took three or four or five years for me to develop that rapport with them where they trusted you. enough. but once they trusted you, I want to go to the Sex Pistols tour. So I go to Texas, San Antonio, uh, you can't travel with the Sex Pistols because it's all mysterious and and they want to keep a secret image and stuff. And the bus comes traveling down the road. They get off. Johnny Rotten walks in. You know the different people. You know they don't say anything. I was the only person there. You know, other papers weren't that ambitious, but it was. Uh, I think magazines would pick him up in a couple cities, but to actually go, you know. And I traveled around from city to city. I wasn't traveling with them, but I'd go to the shows. Uh, but John wouldn't talk. You know, he would. That, that would. The, the mystique was more important than talking to reporters. But the night I think it was in Texas that Sid got hit face. Oh, a guy slugged him, got a bloody nose. Was that a big deal in England? I think. And then he takes the guitar and smashes it over the head. And then the fans, you know, a lot of them are saying fags and stuff and throwing beer cans at him. I mean, it was a wild scene. And so finally, after three or four cities, John sat down in a coffee shop and we did an interview. And I was just amazed at how smart he was, and how colorful he was, and articulate he was, and some of the things he was saying about the music business were so right on. And he said, "By the way, if you go to San Francisco, make sure you take a notebook because this is the last time you'll ever see us." And I thought it was another, yeah, you know, I thought it was, you know, another boast, another kind of t- a thing to get attention. But it it came true. You know, there was that friction between the members and Malcolm McLaren.
0: That was the last show. It all fell apart right there. As as I'm talking to you and talking about Elton John in Russia and the Sex Pistols in in, in the U.S., uh, within a year of each other, I think, these tours, right? The Sex Pistols was 78 and Russia was 79. Is that right?
1: I, well, I remember is but it's it's certainly in the late 70s, yeah.
0: But around about the same time. Yes, yes. And the one thing that is consistent through, through both of those experiences is you wanting to be with this band, be with these musicians as they're exploring, you know, finding new audiences where, wherever that was, and I'm and I'm wondering about you, how you were experiencing these times, not as a as a reporter, but in your own life as somebody traveling to the to these different places.
1: Well, it was it was thrilling, and it began in 1972, seventy three. First time I'd ever been to Europe, uh, I. Credence Clearwater did not like the press, but I got along with Fogarty World because we both like Sun Records and Elvis and that Southern Sound. And so John said, Why don't you come with us to Europe? We have a six-passenger plane. There were only the three of them at that time. So I fly with them to Europe, spend a week traveling around with them. First time I'd seen Europe. So I would do the interview, I'd go to the concert. And the rest of the day, they kind of run around the city. Yeah. Trying to see what it was like. What was London like? Where was a good hamburger place? And they didn't have any. They had a place called Wimpy's. I think they were terrible yeah. burgers. But it was. But <laughs> yeah, that, that was part of the thing. You know, I would I would spend as much time. I would never cut the interviews short or any of my duties as the paper. But I couldn't wait to those moments when I could get on the subway or you know or or see Buckingham Palace or or it, or we go to uh berlin and and see you know historic go of the wall and those kind of things, so it was a it was a double life you know it was living your own way as it, it, if you had a visitor's pass somewhere you could go anywhere and then being with these groups and the reason I wanted to be with them is again, I was trying to be the best, I wanted to have readers count on me, they could trust me to go find good people. I mean, a lot of critics are, try to be part of the story. You know, the language they use, the writing, they set up these stories. I was just there trying to report to that kid back in the San Fernando Valley the way I had been a kid in the San Fernando Valley, saying, here's what happened. I wasn't trying to embellish. And that made it very, you know, artists like that. They, you know, I they didn't mispresent them. I, You know, I I was kind of serving that kid in the valley, and I wasn't trying to make the artist anything other than he was. I was trying to present him honestly. And that really opened a lot of doors. You know, again, Fogarty and Dillard and Kanye West, a lot of people because they, they, they felt safe in a way, you know.
0: In my own career, I've met a few artists through the years, obviously, as as you know, and, I, and I've always taken two things with me in this career of my own. One is the Cameron Crowe line of the artists are not your friends. Yes. and And then the other one is that essentially I'm a fan. I'm i f- I'm a fan of music. I'm a fan of you know the creative process. Is that what it is for you as well, or is it really just reporting?
1: Well, no. I mean, how do you how do you do it? I always when I first started reviewing, you know, I, was, I really was starting it. And how do you, you know, for a million readers? What are you supposed to be? Who are you talking to? You know. And again, I kind of went to that fan in receded the kid who I would have been reading the paper, and I would see a show, and I was very timid though. About saying I didn't like it because who am I to say? And uh, yeah, I would I would sit in a show and I thought it was terrible. But kids were screaming and clapping and all that kind of stuff. So I'd kind of give a maybe at the bottom. I'd kind of give a sentence hinting that I didn't like it. But after a while, I finally we got, I saw Three Dog Night one night, and I and I didn't like you know I didn't like their versions of songs. That Randy had a better version of "Mama Told Me Not to Come." Uh, certainly, Orders Reading had a better version. Try tried a little tenderness. And so I said, you know, these guys are pop acts who are trying to kind of ride on other people. And I just don't think it's very good. And I went home and I was so nervous. I said, oh my God, is the sky going to fall the next morning? And I get up and I pick up, I go outside the paper's sitting there. People are driving to work. The world goes on. It isn't the end of the world. It's your opinion, you know, and you've got to be honest with it because if you don't be honest with it, because you're trying to build up credibility so people will We'll, we'll, you know, we'll do. And one great credibility story was when you mentioned Elton John. It was I'd only been in the paper two months, you know, as a full time critic, and I went to see Elton, and I wrote this review saying how great it, he was. He was going to be the biggest star in the country and the world, and he, he goes, he just accelerates. So they gave you a lot of power. Managers were calling, trying to, you know, court you and so forth like that. But I knew that if I didn't. Pick somebody else again. It would all all of that would go out there when You have one chance. You know the adult thing gives you one chance. And so I looked for two years before I found somebody else who I thought was that exciting or good or I felt that strong. I passed over Cat Stevens. I passed over a lot of people who I said didn't. And the that person who I picked didn't make it. You know he wasn't. I thought he was as good a songwriter as I'd heard ever heard, and he didn't make it. But he's. He had a smaller fan base, and he continued for the rest of his life. And he got uh, Grammys and love of fans. John Prime was the guy I'm talking about. Mm. He was the first person after Elton that I thought, I didn't think, you know, he would be as big a star as that. But I thought he would be a great artist. And also in that process, I learned it's really hard to predict stardom. It, it's much safer talking about artistry.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've had my own experience with that as well. And I think you and I have ha- had shared experiences at different times, but having jobs where, as you just said, everybody wanted to be your friend, or the managers are, managers are calling you and they want you to cover their new artists, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's a difficult position to be in if you're trying to hold on to your credibility. And I, I know you know that experience as well, but were you ever aware of how important your byline was how important your review was and did it make you sort of uncomfortable
1: no no i never i i, I never i don't know how i never thought it was it was the artist that i had this lucky position and that's why i try to present artists accurately because if i didn't then they you couldn't go back to them again and i wanted to always be that you know link between the fan I, and you don't want to be friends you said that earlier that's really true but there's came a couple times when I broke down. John Lennon was one. Uh, I met him, I guess, during that time that he was out in LA, away from Yoko, that that lost weekend. I just felt a connection with him. We both loved Elvis, and these things we'd talk about Elvis and those his favorite acts. There was no sense of I'm a famous Beatle. Uh, that you know, it was more just of two music fans. We'd go to dinner every once in a while in a restaurant in Beverly Hills, and we'd go back to the hotel he was staying at, the Beverly Wilshire, and he'd watch t- television, and he would pick up the phone around 1130 and call room service, and he asked, could you send me a bowl of cornflakes? And he did that two or three times, and I finally asked him, what is it about corn? What is this thing? During the war years in England, you couldn't get cream or milk or something, and that was his delicacy. Think of this guy who we had the whole world, and his says, at 1130, his treat— was a bowl of cornflakes. Yeah, it was, it, so John was one person, it ma- and it makes it very hard because when you review it, you know, you have. sometimes I would pass on their view to somebody else to because I just didn't feel comfortable doing it. Uh, but there was only like three or four or five people through the whole time that I really kind of feel I might have gotten too close to.
0: You stepped away from the music editor gig at the LA Times in 2005, and it was around the time that digital technology was changing, not just the way that music was made and distributed, consumed, but also how it was reviewed and and reported on. And, you know, that's what, 18 years ago now, and we've seen huge changes in, in the way that music is dissected and uh, how, how people hear it and discover it. What your you take on the, the current climate for perhaps writing and critics and reviews?
1: Well, let, me, let me tell you, first of all, why I left. It was 2005. I've been there a long time I loved it, best job in the world, but it, it was no longer the same job. Two things were happening. Newspapers are losing their influence. The internet was taking over. Thousands of reviewers now, you know? Uh, and so it, it, in the LA in 1970, if you asked a music fan, who's the music critic of the Los Angeles Times? They said, oh, this guy, Bob Gilbert. Hmm. I, and I don't mean any... With respect to the music critic today. but if you ask a music a music editor, they probably don't know who the music critic is at the LA Times. They mm-hmm. know what Pitchfork is. They know what these different you know websites are. But there's thousands of people putting their views up, and so the voice of a critic at a paper is much less important. You know, much less read, I, I guess. And so that was what the Newspapers are changing, uh, and the uh, and they were so intimidated by the internet. That if I had found the new Bob Dylan, they would be more excited if I learned that Britney Spears missed her play. Because it was clicks. It was connections. Oh, we got 2,000 responses to that story. So that's one thing. The newspaper job was different. And secondly, music was changing. Music, the American idols, in my mind, killed pop music in a lot of ways. Mm. because it killed, it killed singer-songwriters, which was my favorite, probably, thing. You know, Springsteen and Prine and... uh Bowie, and just on and on. I love Jody Mitchell. I love songwriters. And with American Idol, you didn't have to have a song. You just got it and sang a song. You could take old Motown songs. You could take anything. So gradually, the importance of the songwriter kind of slipped away, and, and rock and roll slips away in, in, in that sense. It's now technology and, and studio and, and uh, spectacle. Yeah. And music has become, a lot of music has become that. You know, people today are to spend $40 million on a house. They're proud of it. You know, back in the day, you would have kind of been, it was a little, it seemed like people were a little more socially conscious, maybe, of what they were doing. Not that those people were saints in any way in the 60s and 70s. They did all kind of indulgences and stuff. But the songwriting seemed to have a philosophy about life that was a little more reasonable, more warm, I guess, in some ways. I, but by the time I left, also I could see rock and roll was being beaten down by hip hop. Hip hop was gonna, you, you know, when Nine Inch Nails, and Public Enemy, and Tupac, and Eminem, and and Jay Z, that became the the street urgency that rock and roll once was. That's where the youthful energy went, the bulk of it. And uh, and there you know, there's, there are some great hip hop artists. I mean, I think uh, I think Kanye in his day uh Kendrick Lamar but that's a certain percentage of rap a lot of rap is just not my world you know so i don't relate to it as much i, I much prefer bob dylan singing about that world which is closer to me than the hip hop artists i can appreciate it and respect it and i think eminem's song stan is one of the greatest records i've ever heard but it's it's not my whole diet you know it's a, it's a it's a it's a dessert maybe but it i i i miss the the stage <laughs> that the songwriter gave me.
0: You know what i what I found myself uh, getting older and obviously, you know, I'm still doing radio and, and, and other bits and pieces, but I just have to sort of accept, I think, that certain music that is being made today is not actually being made for me. It's not yeah. aimed at me. And we're always going to come with a perspective that's based on our own history and background, do you think?
1: That's right. And that's well put. Because think about it: when we, when I'm first running down to my local neighborhood record store to buy the Elvis Presley record, all the parents and the, you know, that's that music's not for them, you know. So that was the change. I think in the last since 2000, that change has taken place again, you know. And and I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't know if Bruno Mars is good or bad. To me, he's not very interesting because he's copying what James Brown and all these people did before. It's nothing new, you know, to it. But maybe if you haven't seen it before, it's valid.
0: Yeah. And there's a performance aspect, which is, you know, totally valid. The, the creative aspect of, you know, how the songs were made and produced is, is something else. But I, I just feel that every generation gets their music and we sort of grow up with it and we come from that. And hopefully we continue to evolve and bring more music on board into our palette. But at some point, you kind of age out.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know, the thing is, think how lucky we are the rock and roll generation, let's say. You know, broad umbrella, soul music, country music, all that. 1955 to 2000, let's say. Swing lasted three years, you know? Mm. There was other things. Bebop was like, you know, five years, four years. That's an amazing. You know, the big band era was like five years. They go 30 years, 40 years. That's an amazing journey. I mean, it by all rights, it's... By the 1980s, it should have been something different.
0: Let's jump into these questions that I ask all of our guests. I, I think you've sort of alluded to, to some of this stuff, but let's kick it off. The first one is, what is your first musical memory?
1: Well, the first musical memory was Bing Crosby. Okay, I was born in 1939, Bing Crosby, 1940, 41, was, the, uh, was bigger than anybody today. You know, he was in every hole, every hole had Bing Crosby records. And the one record, of course, that you heard every year, every holiday, Christmas season, you hear it on the radio. You'll be walking in shops. Nick, and you could hear it coming out the stores, White Christmas. Mm. Was, I've, never heard, I've never seen a record that swallowed year after year after year. You know, no, nothing, hey, Jude, no, nothing came, you know, don't be cruel, hound no, dog, nothing approached that White Christmas impact, okay? It was just part of the American experience. So that was the one thing that made me think about music Uh, or, or, you know, make conscious music. And I wondered, gee, I have to get a record. You could play it anytime you want. That would be great. So
0: what was the first music you bought with your own money?
1: It was Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock. And I was like 14, I think, uh, because my dad had to take me to the record store to buy it. And I got a 78 and it was still the year of the 78. And I brought it home and I played it all night. And I scratched it by accident. No, I didn't play it all. I played it all afternoon. And I scratched it, and I couldn't play anymore. I said, well, can you take me back to get another one? Mm-hmm. We, he drove me back to the, to the record store, and the woman said, oh, we don't have any more Rock Around the Clocks. We don't have any more vinyls. Well, we have this 45. And I turned to my dad and said, can we play that? And Yes, a play, record player could play a 45. So that was my first 45. So I got my first vinyl at first 45 in the same day.
0: That's incredible. My parents went to see uh, Bill Haley and the, and the Comets in, in Birmingham whenever that came out, and uh, all they told me was they just couldn't hear anything. You know, it was a sort of pre, precursor of the Beatles. Yeah. yeah. Talking but, of concerts, what was the first concert you went to without parents or adult supervision?
1: Yeah, Strangely enough, living in the San Fernando Valley was a long way away from Los Angeles and Hollywood. You know, as a kid, you didn't know about concerts as often. And uh, so I didn't really go to a concert until I was maybe 60. and it was Johnny Cash at in Compton, place called Town Hall Party. It was a weekly television show, kind of like the Grand Ole Opry or Louisiana Hayride. Mm. It was uh, working class, you know, neighborhood. And it, the funny thing is, I got there at seven thirty. It was New Year's Eve. I got there at seven thirty, and he's halfway through his show. And I'm what's he doing getting it, you know, where's midnight? And he's gone. He his ambitious manager booked three shows that night. <laughs> it, 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 Compton cuts catches a plane, flies to Reno, does another show, then flies to Oakland, does a third show.
0: <laughs> wow. That's that's uh, that's incredible. Three years three shows on New Year's Eve. Yeah, yeah. What do you listen to? What? Well, well, maybe I could say do you dance, and and if you do, what do you listen to when you want to I dance? I
1: don't, I don't dance. I feel way way too self conscious.
0: What do you listen to when you're feeling sad?
1: Well, this and the story about this is getting the job at the LA Times. One was the test with the Johnny Cash. They said, "Well, maybe it was a blue." Here, do another one, okay? So Janice Joplin was coming to the Hollywood Bowl, and I went. To, I, I I called the record company, and they said, "Look, she's impossible to deal with. She's at the Hollywood, you know." Blah blah blah. Hotel. Call her and see if you can work out an interview with. Her. I call her and I, and it, you know it's like it's like a voice of death on the other end of the phone. And I introduce myself and she says, "Well, you know, oh man, you know, the way people press, they're always kind of, all right, come on, I'll come on to the sound check tomorrow at four o'clock. I get there at four o'clock. She's on stage, she's screaming and. And she's telling the sound man, I can't hear myself in the microphone. I can't hear myself in the microphone. Miss Joplin, it's already nine DBs. Sorry. I don't give no, a no damn what the DB is. I just can't hear myself. Yeah. And so anyway, she finally walks off, goes back to her dressing room. A big burly bodyguard is standing in front of the door. I said, I'm sorry, I got my suit on again. I'm like narc. I've got a, I've got an interview with Miss Miss Joplin. He goes, oh, you Oh, he looks like you are you kidding me? And he goes in and finally I go in there. She's laying on a sofa with a bottle of Red Roses or whatever, where she used to drink Jack Daniels. And I start talking and and I feel so bad for her, you know, because she's already said on the phone how business people and press people are always after her and they're always bothering her. They can't let her live quietly. And uh, I, I so I say to her, do you have anything you'd like to talk about? And she says, man, you don't even have your own questions. <laughs> but anyway, so, but anyway, she plays, it was one of the great shows I ever saw. The internet was fantastic. It got me the job. And uh, I, I, you know, she, I met her again, and she said she had just met Christopherson, and she's singing, she might do a whole album of Christopherson songs. And I'm getting, August at the point. And then and, and she dies. A few months after she dies, the radio you know, on comes me and Bobby McGee. And here's that sad voice, you know, this singing this song about hope. Maybe there's a hope. In, and, and I just started crying. And and whenever, if I if I were sad, I would play that. because I'd play it if I'm happy. I'd play it if I'm sad. It's got that tenderness and human quality she had. And I never saw any other artist really have it as much as she does. Give meeting needing that audience. And then dying. And then hearing her voice coming back. And she's got, there's a twinkle of hope in that song. So that's the, that's the song I would play.
0: It's a great story as well. I mean, having seen her in that position in, in and of itself was sad, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was yeah. unforgettable. Yeah. And then the great thing was I did the story and the editor sent me a note with the story saying, you might ought to come in. Maybe it's time we talk about the job now.
0: If you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, what would it be?
1: You know these are impossible questions, which w- makes them so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and on different day, you say different things in different days. But again, it's somebody I was very close to at one point, and a song I just think is immortal: like Paul Simon's "Graceland," because it's got it's this journey. Life is this journey. You're going to, and someday, someday there's going to be this salvation. There's going to be this hope. this You know, what, all you go through, and it's something. It's got that Elvis guitar licks in it because he, he loves Sun Records too. Paul does. And so that's the song. It always gives me, lifts me.
0: Let's, let's sidetrack on this a little bit because you've written a, a biography a, about Paul Simon and you also went to Africa with him when he was performing Graceland. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So I don't know how I met Paul. I guess I just met him doing energies with him and he always struck me as so smart. You know, he was so smart and one time I did an interview with him and it, uh, it was in San Francisco. And he said, I got two hours before I have to catch the plane and we start doing this interview. I don't even have to ask questions. He's just telling me everything. That it, it, and finally, it's over and it's two hours. I mean, he exactly knew. So he, I was always loved to interview him because he was always so smart. And then, when he, and again, when he goes, I hear he's going to Graceland, the LA Times gave me the point. Whatever you want to do something, whatever you think is important go do it. So I call him up, uh, and I was the only person, I guess, who called or, you know, thought it was that important. And so I go with him to Graceland, and it was such an amazing show because this country, Zimbabwe, so much racial tension in the country. said so they're playing the concert in a soccer field, I think it was. It was a park. I guess it had a stage. It must have been a soccer field. And it was in this really rough, black Territory, And so the whites that came in there were very, very nervous. And they had all kind of police, guns. And so there was a lot of tension in what was such a wonderful, uplifting, joyous day. And uh, I, I went to town the next day. He, he was going, he took a plane to go see the, one of the eighth windows of the world is there. And so I said, no, I'm, I have to go do, I always want to get more information to make the story better. So go to the local record store. And they have all these copies of Graceland, the only English record they had in the store. And I said, is that record selling a lot? And he said, oh, yeah. And you know what? It's made people hear an interest in their own music. You know, now we're, we're buying more and more. Well, they had other American records. They had Motown, the other thing. But this record was the first one that made them, I have to start ordering more African records. And that was a great, you know, kind of moment. So when I thought about doing a book, I said, he's this great songwriter. And I putting you know, in my top five, uh, I thought he's—you know—he's th- such a great interview.
0: Do you have a favorite music video?
1: Yeah, it, it, two of them, if I could say. Johnny Cash's "Hurt," his version of Nine Inch Nails—the song where he's so naked, he's—he's—he looks like a man who's dying. His wife, June Carter, and the manager did not want him to do that because John, that's going to—that's your fans are going to think you're old and frail. He says. I am old and frail. Mm. And it's the artistry. And Look, he did that. He let himself be seen that way to make that great, great video. But the one that really struck me too was Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues, you know, where he's got the cards and he's slipping mm. the cards. Because just the, the battery, the cards were going and that battery. was like a machine kind of words coming out. So those were the two you know, that, that I just always stand out.
0: That's one of my favorite uh, Dylan songs as well. I played that on the radio this morning.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, Dylan is unbelievable. I went to Israel with Dylan. It was in his first tour. Again, I was the only you know, only reporter because I asked and wanted to go. And the great thing is, that, if I can tell you the story, uh, the first night he comes out in this park, 40,000 people, and he starts doing his latest album. <laughs> and, the, and people are starting booing and stuff. And the next day, the paper says his time is, the times they've changed again. He's lost. It's all over with, you know. And we have breakfast that morning at the hotel. And he says, well, how was the show last night? And I said, well, you know, brother, one of the problems is you you've got so many great songs that people want to hear and you didn't necessarily play them. And he says, well, what do you mean? I said, look, it, it, people in this country have been listening to these songs. You are you know, they you're their, you know, prodigal son in a way. You're Jewish. And they've heard all these. They've lived with these songs. Times they were changing and subterranean homesick blues and, you know, like a rolling stone for 50 years, 40 years. They, they want to hear that. And he said, well, write down, what do you think I should sing? I, I wrote down the, a set list and gave him the thing. And the next night he comes out and starts doing that set list. Isn't that great?
0: And, and I'm guessing that was um, some sometime in the 80s, right?
1: Yeah, I lose track of all this. It was in the 80s, though. But, yeah. you know, Dylan was, I mean, I went to Berlin with Dylan one time. I went to the road and I spent two nights, two, three nights with him. And, and what that great story was I get on the bus. I want to give him a gift just to kind of make him think I'm thinking of him. And I got this book that had every concert he had ever done. I said, Bob, you want to see this book? It's got every show you've ever done. He says, no, I was I was at those shows. If you got a book going next year, you know, the great thing about was he's the greatest, but he, you never know which Bob's on your meeting. He can be sometimes totally distant, turned off. It's a weird, weird, you know, he really is. There's a certain genius factor in, that, in him. He's unpredictable, but certainly of, of all the great interviews. You know, he's, he's got to be. I, I, he, I, I one time did a story for the paper on songwriting, uh, not the personal life. And I did Joni Mitchell and him and Merle Haggard and, and Ice Cube and, and Bono. I went to Amsterdam. I didn't know how long he would take. Is he going to be one of those great Dylan moods or bad Dylan moods? And we started doing the interview. How do you write a song? Why did you get into writing a song? And he starts telling me, he starts showing me things, telling me all kinds of great things. After an hour the a there's a knock on the door, which is the road manager. There's always the excuse they can, if, the, if it's not going well, they can say, well, Bob, I'm sorry, you have another interview now. And he said, give us another hour. Oh, can you imagine? And then he came back and knocked on the door again. Donald said, we're okay for the night. It, so we talked nine hours wow. about writing. And Mojo said it was the greatest interview ever. And I'm not saying these things in a sense of bragging. I'm just saying how exciting and how interesting things are that happen, you know? It wasn't a great interview because of me. It was a great interview because of Dylan.
0: I always say that if the subject of the interview shows up for the conversation, my job is easy.
1: And that's a good point, yeah.
0: It, it doesn't mean I don't have to be prepared or anything, but it's a lot easier when the person you're talking to actually wants to talk.
1: But also what you know is you learn. See, I didn't, you have to. You do a lot more interviews. That I mean, I would do maybe one every couple of weeks or something. You pick people that you care about and are, Right and are good. I, there's several interviews I did and never did the story. They just had nothing to say, you know. And if I didn't find anything that made me question in the music, so you 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 have a you have a select sample to begin with. You get Eminem's going to be fine. Springsteen's going to be fine. John Prime was not a particularly good interview, you know, as good a writer he is. So not everybody. And I, and I think that influences your writing too. When you have to do a story, you turn to those people who are great artists. Every year I would write a. Here are my five people. No matter what else happens, them, I want to make sure I get their story, you know, and I would see who's coming up. And then, and if someone was not a good interview, I would not put them on the five. You, you have to be a great artist and a great interview.
0: Yeah. You don't go back if somebody's bluffing, somebody is blowing you I, off.
1: I mean, that's exactly right. You know, the yeah. worst interview, God bless him, is Stevie Wonder because he shows up three hours late. But he's in the studio working on stuff. And then when he gets there, he talks in a very philosophical way that if you ask him what day is today, he'll take 20 minutes before he says Wednesday. Okay. But then when you get back and you transcribe it all four hours to get 20 minutes of usable stuff, it's very, very good. But it's like being a a chain gang, getting to those 20 minutes.
0: Yeah. I've had to become pretty good at editing, editing myself. Do you, do you have a, a, a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: No, that's what I count on you, because I can not keep up with it. I used to think, I used to really be contemptuous of people that were, say, my age when I was 30 or 40, who were no longer, they wouldn't know anything was going on in music and stuff. But I realized after I left the paper, I had all that time to listen to it and find it and discover. And those people who, you know, had jobs, they had to go to jobs. And now even writing books is like a job, in a sense, you don't have as much time. And secondly, my ears had lost a lot of hearing over the years, and I hate to you know keep exposing it to more noise. I, I don't go to concerts because of that, and even the the records sometimes it, it just seems like it's it's invading that in some way. If I play too loud, I want to play it loud. I tried to keep up for a while after I left the paper, you know, and you find you know certain people you really love. I, I adore Billy Eilish, and I think. St. Vincent and Jason Isbell. And there's a lot of people
0: I really like. Uh, You talked about John Prine a little bit earlier, and I don't know if that is the answer to this question. If it is, then we'll just move on. But maybe there's somebody else who might fit the bill. Is there a band or an artist that you love but feel they never got the big break they deserved?
1: Yes, I I would still say John Prine because uh, there are people today that I certainly would recommend, but Prine's always been the sentimental choice.
0: Do you have... A musical guilty pleasure.
1: I, I could name a lot of things that I liked that weren't really supposed to be cool, but that's, I think ABBA probably is the best. Uh, and then now ABBA is very, very respected when it first came out. Oh, what is that terrible thing? But then Costello and people like that would praise it and stuff. Uh, so, but so ABBA somehow fits what was once a guilty pleasure, but now it's respected. Did you ever see ABBA live? I did not. Well, they were terrible. <laughs> I'm sure now they can
0: just do it with holograms.
1: Yeah, you know, it's like I, I went to see them in Sacramento and they, they, were, they didn't have good moves. They didn't have, it was, they wore terrible clothes. It was just embarrassing, you know. It was everything that the image was of Ava. The music was kind of fine, but everything else was so bad. You just kind of, you know, you couldn't enjoy it almost.
0: We're wrapping it up with our last question. How are you feeling right now?
1: I feel great. I really feel great. You know, even, you know, with the occasional aches and pains, um, I just think the world's a great place with all the terrible things that, you know, there is so much to care about in in life and there's, you know, music for people. There's lots of music to find, you know, even the people like me who tend to lean back a bit to listen to things. Uh, But I think on a good day, the world's a great place and this is a good day.
0: Well, listen, Robert, you and I have bumped into each other a couple of times over the years. We've never had a a really in-depth conversation, but let me take this opportunity, first of all, to say that I think you are one of the most important music critics of the last 50 years, and to say thank you for taking a moment and talking a little bit about uh, your history and about the music that you like. Appreciate it.
1: You're such a delightful person, especially in this kind of a format and talking and so forth. You can't tell me how many times I go to places and they mention your name. You've got such a following, such a loyal following.
0: You're too kind. Thank you so much, Robert. Great talking with you. Thanks so much, Nick. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.